we look at the first Christmas story, the real Christmas story, we see the God who revealed himself to us. He is the Yahweh who remembers. He is the one who didn't want to leave us without hope. He is one whose righteousness, unlike ours, is full of mercy. He came to us as a newborn baby in our world, living among our lives. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Reach out to Him this Christmas season. He came to earth for you. As we go through this last part of the Christmas story for this season, I want to turn my focus a little bit off of Joseph and Mary now, and I want us to look at the other characters that are famously involved in the Christmas story, most especially the shepherds and the wise guys. Um, We're going to start in Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to invite you to come to Luke 2 with me And we're going to address a very well-known passage of Scripture for those who have spent time in church or in reading the Bible. This passage is very, very interesting to me because the Christmas story is a story about poor people and foreigners. That's what the Christmas story is about, poor people and foreigners, And so with a story that goes that direction, you don't expect Luke, who is an extraordinary historian, to say, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is at this time probably the most powerful human being on the face of the earth. He is the first true Roman emperor. His uncle was Julius Caesar who helped expand Rome's influence so far. And then Julius adopted his nephew. His nephew's given name was Octavius. Octavius was not the commander that Julius Caesar was, but the brilliant thing about Octavius was that he knew that. Octavius knew that he was no great shakes, either as an admiral or a general. What Octavius was, was a phenomenal administrator. And he was phenomenal also at understanding how particular laws affected the whole society. You might be interested to know that even though Octavian was an atheist, he opposed his own sister's adultery because he believed adultery and divorce destabilized the whole culture. And so I just want to point out to you that Octavian had some very interesting insight in terms of how various behaviors can strengthen a society as a whole or break down a society as a whole. Now, when Octavian became emperor, created, called himself the number one citizen of the whole empire. He was able to call himself that. He was elected consul for life. He was in charge of the Senate. So really, he had imperial power. He set up a cycle of registrations, a cycle of taxation. Once every 14 years the whole Roman Empire would be registered. And they registered the Roman Empire so they could draw soldiers for their armies and so they could pay taxes. So the people would pay the Romans taxes. Now, the Jews were exempted from military service. They were not required to serve in the Roman legions, but they were required to pay taxes. And this was always a problem for the Jews because the Jews considered those taxes illegal. 
They believed they should not be paying money to a Gentile empire. They believed they should be self-governing. And so there were always revolts, and the Romans always answered those revolts very brutally. Uh, Mass crucifixions in multiple situations. In those days, those days, in those days when Elizabeth is uh, giving birth to John the Baptist, in those days when Mary, the mother of Jesus, is pregnant, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, this is the first of the 14-year cycle decrees, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Jonathan, this is one of those places where we have to watch out for the History Channel because the Greek text here says that Quirinius was hegemone in Syria. This was the first census that Quirinius was the hegemone, the governor at this time. And so people on the History Channel will look at the dates when certain Roman officials uh, ruled and they'll say, well, wait, Quirinius wasn't made governor of Syria till 6 AD. So clearly Luke has made a mistake that the politics here is actually more complicated than that. Quirinius was an extremely effective military commander, and the Romans had put him in charge of Egypt and Syria. The Holy Land is considered part of Syria by the Romans. Quirinius was the military hegemone of this region all the way back to 14 B.C. He had been put in charge of this whole area. The political governor of Syria at this time is a man named Varus, who managed to fail at virtually every major thing that he did. Now, Augustus no longer trusts King Herod. Once upon a time, Augustus considered King Herod a personal friend. He then made a change in their relationship when he found out that Herod could be less than trustworthy. And so he didn't allow Herod to take the taxes, and he didn't allow Varus to take the taxes, who was the governor of Syria. He had Quirinius, the military governor, be put in charge of this taxation. And so Luke, as usual, is quite accurate, quite bang on the money here. This was the first of the registrations when Quirinius was governor. All went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, earlier we talked about which Bethlehem are we talking about. Why is Joseph going to Bethlehem? Because he's of the family of David. Which Bethlehem is David's family from? The southern Bethlehem, the one close to Jerusalem. So we're very clear that we're talking about of two Bethlehems in Israel. We're talking about the southern one. Joseph also went up from Galilee. Now, Galilee is the northernmost state in Israel. If you think of it this way, I mean, it's hard to think of a country that's only about 120 miles long divided into three states. But that's basically what we've got. In the northernmost part, you've got Galilee. In the southernmost part, you've got Judah. And in between those two, you've got Syria. Now, Galilee is the hill country. That's where a lot of the people that aren't so well educated are from. That's where Joseph and Mary live. Now, the Romans used in Palestine a custom that they started in Egypt. And that was having people go back to their tribal ancestral homes to be registered. That's how the command went out. So Joseph, who is, now here he is, a regular peasant construction worker. I don't believe he's probably thought of himself as a son of David for a long, long time. But Roman Empire thinks of him as a son of David, so now he's got to go south to Bethlehem to register. You know, Bethlehem is kind of a romantic image for the Jews because that was where the shepherd boy who became king 
came from, this idea that even a shepherd boy could be king. So Joseph gets that part of his legacy. He heads down there from the town of Nazareth, a very, very tiny town. As you've heard me mention a couple of times, we've got a list of 75 towns of villages in Israel, and Nazareth is so small it doesn't make the list in a country that's only 120 miles long. So he goes up from Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, that's the south, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered. Now notice he brings Mary with him. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, she is technically a Jewish fiancé, which is almost a wife but not quite, who was with child. Now, Luke emphasizes the fact both that Mary is going with Joseph to this registration. Some people have pointed out she really didn't need to make that trip, but maybe Nazareth wasn't so comfortable right now. A lot of us assume that with, with Mary being basically a single mother, that they were happy to leave. In fact, as this story goes on, we'll find out that they will buy a house in Bethlehem. So Joseph evidently intends to move. This is the first of multiple moves that the Holy Family has to go through because of the circumstances they're facing. He will move. He will buy a new house, and I'm sure he will start working his trade in that region. So he has to relocate whatever level of business he's got. She's with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, I want you to notice that we don't know that they had a donkey. We love to imagine this donkey, right? We haven't mentioned a donkey. So maybe they had one, maybe they didn't. But the Scripture doesn't mention it. I just want to point out the Scripture doesn't mention it. We also notice how Luke tells this story with no drama. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Notice there's no jumpsuits. There's no uh, boxes of pampers. There's been no baby shower. She doesn't have anything special for this kid. So she ends up wrapping the kid in strips of linen and laid him in a manger. Notice there's no mention of animals. There's no mention of a stable because there was no place for them in the inn. We don't mention a mean-spirited innkeeper. All of those details are things that we've just kind of wondered about and imagined in this story. What we, what we can probably guess, and I mentioned this on Christmas Eve, is most of us are not exceptionally prompt when it comes to doing our taxes. Isn't that true? You don't usually wake up on New Year's Day, January 1, with your tax forms for the previous year completely filled out and all highlighted with a colored pencil like the geeky guy in the odd couple used to do. You know, most of us aren't like that. Most of us, as we start getting toward the end of March, start saying, you know, we really ought to get our taxes together. A lot of us do that. And that's probably what happened here in Bethlehem. Do you know it took over two years to get the whole Roman registration done? I want you to notice that the city is packed. There's no room in the inn. So evidently, a lot of people that come from the tribe of David have dawdled, and so they're all getting to Bethlehem at about the same time. That's just to reinforce for you that human nature has not changed dramatically in 200 years. We also find out the only, no mention of a stable, and one of the things that's interesting about this, either a stable or a cave, is that Palestine didn't tend to use outbuildings for things like we did in the Midwest and the Old West. They tended to put their animals in the basement 
under the house. And chances are very, very good that when this baby was born, they were in the dark of the basement where the people normally kept their animals. He's laid in a manger, a feeding trough. The baby shower didn't provide a crib or a bassinet or anything like that. And we sit, we're looking here at a peasant family. Now, it so happens, it's, you almost hear, like the old radio dramas, you almost hear Luke saying here, Meanwhile, out there in the same region, there were shepherds in the field. Now, we have some history. It's not as old as we'd like it to be. There is some rumor that shepherds were considered not very trustworthy, kind of like gypsies. And that when the shepherds moved into your area with their flocks, people would take all the bicycles and put them inside, you know, because they're not certain which of them may walk off during the night. That information comes from about the 500s, so I don't know exactly that it's accurate about these shepherds, but it could be. One thing that we do know about shepherds is that the work of a shepherd is messy work. I had a friend who lived downstairs from me once who was a shepherd from New Zealand. And talking with him let me know a lot more about what day-to-day life as a shepherd is like. And at the very least, I can tell you, it would keep you perpetually, ritually unclean with relationship to the temple. The activities of a shepherd would make you constantly unable to go to worship at the temple. There were in that same region shepherds out in the field. When would they be out in the field? Some people have tried to figure out when Jesus was born based on the fact there were shepherds in the field. All of those efforts are are not 100% successful. One of the rationales I've heard is that it may have been early spring because that's when a lot of the sheep would have lambs and that would be one of the reasons the shepherds would have to be in the field is to make sure that those lambs were protected long enough till they could grow up and survive could be talking early spring when was december 25th chosen for jesus's birthday that's actually goes all the way back to about 200 a.d that's not such a late addition the idea of december 25th is actually fairly early about 200 a.d it was formalized as law under constantine in the early 300s so that's actually a pretty pretty early thing an angel of the lord an angel of the lord appeared to them Now, what have we pointed out about angels? Every single time human beings run into angels, the normal experience is to be petrified. It's so funny how we do angels in our culture, right? We have fat little naked babies with wings hanging on our Christmas tree, and that's how we imagine angels. We don't very often imagine the kind of scary angel with a sword blade that goes in all kinds of directions that will keep you out of the Garden of Eden. We don't very often imagine the kinds of angels that are on fire, which is what seraphim means, the flaming ones that with wings over their face and their feet, they're flying around. And when they sing, holy, 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 the voices are so powerful, a stone building shakes. Now, that's a choir that's going to scare me right out of the building. When one angel appears to these shepherds, And the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. That's some shaken up shepherds right there. And the angel said to them, and I've pointed this out to you multiple times, I love how often the expression, don't be afraid, how often the expression, fear not, comes up in the Christmas story. Over and over and over again. And I feel like God is trying to communicate to us 
about how we live in fear, how we live anxious about money, about relationships, about where life is going, about how much whatever, debt, how little of this, how much of that. Uh, We live with fear that if we trusted in God better, we would put aside. Don't be afraid, the angel says. I came to bring you good news. (laughs) You can quit shaking. (laughs) I'm not here to squash all you guys. I actually came here with a bit of good news. Of great joy that will be for all the people. Well, if it's for all the people, why are you telling these guys? Isn't that interesting? The gospel for all humanity. And God selects a peasant family, an old priest and his wife that nobody's going to notice, and a bunch of shepherds that aren't even clean enough to go worship a church. It's a pretty amazing thing that God has done here. He does not think like we do. God does not practice favoritism. There were a lot of other people that God could have sent this message to. There are kings. There are Roman governors. There are priests. There's a priesthood, the Sadducees. There are leading Pharisees, the moral majority of Israel, who ran the synagogues and did the homeschooling and all that stuff in the local communities. God could have gone to any of those local grassroots elders and um, synagogue teachers. He didn't go to any of them. He went to these shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Once again, there's only one city of David, the southern Bethlehem. Is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is... Okay, here's the big announcement. The Christ. Christ is a Greek word. Christos. The Christ has come. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. They are the same word. Christ is not Joseph and Mary's last name. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. And they both refer to God's special anointed one. The word Christ or Messiah has to do with oil. It has to do with anointing. We set aside people in a ritual ceremony in old Israel by anointing them with oil. We anoint people when they go from being a regular Levite in training to when they become a priest. They get anointed. When a person is selected to be a prophet of God Most High, just like Elijah anointed Elisha to set him aside for the ministry of prophecy. Kings, we know that the last judge Samuel took oil and poured it on Saul's head and then later took oil and applied it to David's head. We anoint priests, prophets, and kings. Jesus is all three. In fact, he is the anointed of anointed ones. He is one that the Jews have been waiting for. I don't feel like there's any way we can really grasp this. The Jews have been waiting for this Messiah for 1,400 years. We have no nations standing today who have been nations continuously, governments that have been continuously in power for that period of time. You have a nation here that's been continuously 
in existence for over a thousand years. And that's who they've been waiting for. And the thing that blows my mind is that none of them will come to see this baby even though he's the center of national identity and expectation for over a thousand years. They won't come. God chose the people who would come. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby. This will be a sign to you. This is how you will know you have found the right child. When you find this child, you will find that he is going to be wrapped in strips of cloth. We have no special jumpsuit here. <coughs> no eyes odd by baby clothes. There's nothing fancy about this child. And you're going to find him sleeping in a feeding trough. When you find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth in a feeding trough, you have found the right kid. And suddenly... Now, as if one angel with the glory of the Lord wasn't enough to frighten you, you put yourself out in the field and imagine this. Suddenly, with the angel, there was a multitude of the heavenly host. The old Greek word strategoi shows up here where we get our English word strategy. God decides to unload a legion of angels into the sky. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of angels in the sky. If I wasn't petrified as a shepherd before, I'm certainly scared now. I've got sheep that are giving birth all around me. (laughs) Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Boy, it's going to be good to get there, isn't it? Our world has so little recognition of who God is. So seldom do you hear his name used well and hearts lifted up in praise and blessing. How cool it's going to be to hear when we get to heaven the sound that the book of Revelation describes as the rushing of great waters, a sound like the ocean of praise. Glory to God in the highest and on earth Now, there's been some interesting work in translation with this verse. It hasn't been terribly easy to work through, but over the years, you'll see that translations have changed a little bit in direction, and what I'm sharing with you is actually very, very close to understanding the text. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. The translation is referring to, To the idea that through Jesus Christ there is now a way to have favor with God. There is now a way to find favor with God. Through the door opened up through this Messiah. And God's favor will be on them. And with those who have come into His favor, He will be pleased. The shepherds hear from the angels an announcement that this Messiah is a door into relationship with God where we can be with the Lord both in favor and in pleasing Him. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds, and this is the first lesson I want you to hear from this today. I want you to hear what the shepherds say because this is what makes sense, not what happened in Jerusalem later. 
the shepherds say to one another, let us go to Bethlehem. We just had a bunch of angels tell us that God did something on this earth. We just had a bunch of angels tell us that the Savior from our sins has come. God has just revealed to us a way to be in relationship with Him. Him, Let's go to Bethlehem. I believe that's the sensible response. Let's go. The, the right response is not, well, you know, it's kind of inconvenient. I've actually got a meeting tonight. I, you know, and I don't know how I'm going to work this. So I, I'm not, I, don't, I can't find a way to go. The people who are in charge of religion in Jerusalem will decide that the seven-mile trip that they've been waiting for for 1,400 years is too inconvenient to go. God is willing to make time with them. Are they willing to make time for Him? You know, that's the amazing thing that we're facing in our culture. The biggest challenge with encouraging people to have a relationship with God, to actually read their Bibles, to spend time in prayer, is that they just have a hard time making the time to let the creator of the universe into their space. It's amazing what we will sell for our convenience. Let us go to Bethlehem. The shepherds have the right idea. If God shows up in your backyard, go! If he's willing to talk to you, talk to him. If he's willing to talk to you, listen. Don't find umpteen zillion things in your life more important than being with him. Let us go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that he made the effort to tell us about. And they went with haste. They hurried. And they found... Now, you know, you always have to read this sentence carefully. Because it's so easy to say they went and found Mary, Joseph, and the baby all in the manger. You know, pretty big manger. So I always kind of exert myself here to say they went and they found Mary and Joseph. And then there's a comma. And the baby who was lying in a manger. It's a little grammatical humor there. And when they saw it, this is the next thing the shepherds do that I really like. They made known. The saying that had been told them concerning the child. They found the child as God told them they would, and they spoke to other people that they had connection with what they had experienced. You don't have to go to Bible college or seminary to do that. And I want to remind you today that it's probably one of the two most powerful forms of spiritual communication you can share with someone. The other most powerful form of spiritual communication is the Word of God, well-communicated, well-spoken. Your personal testimony is the other thing that's going to catch people by surprise, fresh, simple, and cause them to get curious about the Lord. Just like when the Samaritan woman ran into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. People of the town knew what kind of woman she was and said, Well, that must have taken a while. And they came back to see who this Jesus was. That's all the shepherds do. They tell them what they experienced of the Lord. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is a woman who's going through a lot, and she's going to go through a lot more before he even becomes a teenager. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. Two things I really want you to notice about good and evil in the Bible. When these shepherds have an encounter with God, they are made happy by it. I want you to notice that. You can tell in the New Testament who the bad guys are and who the good guys are because the bad guys never know when to be happy. Jesus heals a man with a withered arm right in front of them. The regular people go, oh my goodness, look at what God has done. And the other people say, he shouldn't have done it on a Sabbath day. So here you have this amazing healing right in front of them. They don't know when to be happy. The shepherds, because they have had this encounter with God, they're spontaneously giving him praise. It's one of the things I love about reading the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul will just be riding along, and then he'll stumble into something that reminds him how great Jesus is. And he just has to stop and say, he is so cool. And he has to give praise to Jesus. And then he says, okay, now what was I talking about? And then he gets back and starts writing again. Thank God he wrote down all those doxologies. Praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So we need to learn from the shepherds. When God shows up as he has, we have his word in our hands. He made sure we would get it. There are people that have died to have this. There are other people that you'll never know their names who have spent whole dusty lives trying to take a 2,000-year-old Greek manuscript and understand it so that you can read it in your own language. 500 years ago, you would have been burned at the stake for reading the Bible in your own language. And now you can read it anytime you want without fear. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, and let me show you some other wise guys. These are an interesting group of men in Matthew chapter 2, second chapter of the New Testament. And you notice that when Matthew times this, he lets us know that the baby has already been born here. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, notice which Bethlehem? Of Judea. In the days of Herod the king. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus has been born and Herod is still king. Why is that important? Because according to our Roman calendars, Herod died somewhere between 5 and 4 B.C., which means that our calendars are off about four to five years. It's actually not December of 2014. It's December of 2018 or so. But don't write that on your checks. It won't work. Herod will die soon, but not soon enough. Herod, this Herod is called Herod the Great. And it's not because his older brother was Alexander. You know, it's not the great family. Herod is called Herod the Great because he was a brilliant administrator because he was a brilliant and powerful builder and because he managed to survive holding kingship over all of Israel through multiple bosses who he managed to persuade everyone that he was their right-hand man. When he was first in power in Palestine, he was under Cleopatra, the last Greek to be in charge of the Egyptians. 
Julius Caesar comes in, takes over Egypt. Egypt becomes the emperor's private playground. And now Herod is answer to Julius Caesar. And he lets he convinces Julius Caesar that, yes, I've been your right-hand man all along. Mark Antony comes in. Julius Caesar has been killed. Mark Antony is in Egypt. He's running with Cleopatra. And Herod says, Mark, I'm so glad you're here. I'm your right-hand man. And then when Octavius defeats Antony at sea and Caesar Augustus himself comes to Egypt and takes Egypt over, Herod goes, whoa, have I been waiting for you. He managed to survive all those changes of power and remain king in Palestine. But he is also famously cruel. Herod the Great is spectacularly, psychopathically cruel. While he is king, behold, wise men, the word here is magoi, or as we would write it in English, magi, M-A-G-I. It's where we get the English word magic. These guys are an unusual, in our estimation, in our thinking, they are an unusual class of men from Persia, the magoi. They are guys who are philosophers, they are scientists, and they are astrologers. And they are living in a country that has 500 years of Jewish tradition in it, from all the Jews that had not gone back after the Babylonian captivity. How did they find out about the Jewish Messiah? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how God revealed himself to these guys. Did he make all their star charts work out? I don't know. But somehow these foreigners make an 800-mile trip all the way from Persia-slash-Babylon area up through the desert north of Arabia, through Damascus, all the way down through Syria and down into Palestine. They come to find he who is born king of the Jews. There has not been a Jewish king of the Jews for a long time by the time these guys get here. There were high priests, evil high priests, in the 100 to 200 years before Jesus was born who had taken the role of king. Very, very bad people. And then you've got Herod, who's not a Jew. He's from the land south of the Dead Sea called Edom. They called him the Idumean. He is not a Jewish king of the Jews. The Magi come and say, and notice they're, they're asking for him who has been born king of the Jews. None of these other guys had been born to be king here. Supposedly there is one now. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. I want you to notice that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. When Herod becomes afraid that somebody is after his crown, people die all around. And so when Jerusalem hears that these foreigners have come in looking for the king of the Jews, and Herod gets disturbed by this, all the people are disturbed by this. This man has already killed his favorite wife. He has already killed two of his sons. In fact, Caesar Augustus made a pun about Herod. He said, I would rather be Herod's weon than his weos. A weon is a pig. 
Herod's not going to eat pig because he's king of the Jews. I would rather be his we own than his we owes, which is his son. You'd be better off to be his pig than his boy. That's what Caesar Augustus knew about Herod. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and he called the chief priests and the scribes. The thing that kills me about this is that he brings these religious leaders together. He knows that the question is a religious one. He knows that the one who is to be king of the Jews is talked about in the Hebrew Scriptures. So he calls the people who know the Bible, the priests and the scribes. And I want you to notice that the scholars know the answer. They know where to look for it. And it kills me. Their whole lives are devoted to religion, and God shows up in their backyard, and they don't go. They know to look in Micah chapter 5. This was the passage we read for our praise passage today. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I want you to notice that to the Jews, this is a passage about the Messiah. So Herod, he's a cunning man. If you haven't gotten that already from me telling you that he survived four different dangerous bosses, he's a cunning man. And he doesn't let the Magi know that he doesn't want any competition, even from God. He makes it look like, yeah, I'm interested in worshiping God too. So he works to deceive them. He summons the wise men secretly. Doesn't let the Jews know. He ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. When do you see this thing? And he sent them to Bethlehem. Go ahead. Go to Bethlehem. Search for this child. And when you have found him, come back and let me know so that I can come and worship him. What do we take from this, friends? The Magi have already taught us the same lesson that the shepherds have. Except in traveling seven, instead of traveling seven miles to see God, they traveled 800 miles to see God. My suggestion would be, however far you have to travel to meet God, it's worth it. Yeah? But the other thing we need to see from the Magi here is that they got fooled by a cunning and dangerous man of the world. Solomon, when he talks about wisdom, he talks about it in two flavors. Knowing the Word of God and doing it, and being savvy about the ways of this world. Be careful what you say in the palace, Solomon says. Be careful how you talk to somebody who is greedy. Solomon warns us that we need to be savvy. And Jesus warns us that we need to be savvy also. Jesus himself says, The children of the light are not as cunning as are the children of darkness. You need to be as shrewd as serpents, as harmless as doves. He warns us that this world is a deceptive place and people will play us if we aren't savvy. Magi get played here for a while. Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word so I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the rest of the place where the child lay. What is this star? You know what? We don't have a clue. 
We don't know what this star is. Because it can single out a house in Bethlehem, it looks like it might be a miracle. (laughs) It's not Halley's Comet. That was too early. That was about 12 B.C. And, of course, Halley's Comet isn't great about singling out individual houses in Palestine. There was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in about 7 B.C., That's also too early, and that also is not going to do a good job singling out a house. So there are lots of ideas that have been thrown out at this, none of them very satisfying. Whatever this star was, it helps the Magi find, and by the way, have you ever seen a Christmas display that shows the wise men in a house? (laughs) This happens sometime after the manger. That's, that's another thing that we have to adjust in our Christmas story. The shepherd saw the baby when he was still in a manger. By the time the wise men get there, the family's now in a house. It's been a couple months anyway. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, and friends, yeah, good guys, bad guys, right? They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They're in the presence of what God is doing, so they are happy. So they are happy. Have you ever been in that frame of mind where your mood is so dark, your focus is so depressed and self-centered and whatever it is, that even if God does something right in front of you, you don't feel real happy about it? You've been there. I know I have. It's a powerful indicator of the presence of God in a person's life, that they're happy when they encounter what God does. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That's the proper response to God. They fall down and they worship him. I will always tell you there's no safety outside the Lordship of Christ. There's no safety outside the Lordship of Christ. They fall down and they worship him and they present to him treasures. Gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. It's expensive stuff. And people have noticed that gold is a great gift to give to a king. People have noticed that frankincense, which is that special incense that is made for use in the temple, that that is a great gift for a priest. Myrrh, on the other hand, is a very weird gift to give a baby. Myrrh is sometimes used to make perfumes, but most often myrrh is used to prepare a body for burial. That's a very interesting gift to give a baby. It's like we've got the baby shower. They show up with the bottles. They show up with the rattles. They show up with the pampers. They show up with the carriage. And I bought your child a burial plot. What? Yeah, I know the day's eventually going to come. You're going to have to bury the kid, and I bought the piece of ground for you already. That would really be an interesting Mood changer on a baby shower, wouldn't it? Myrrh is a very strange present to bring. You and I, as Christians, we have a sense that maybe there is a prophetic intent here about a child who literally did come to die for us. Maybe that's why the myrrh is here. Gold for a king, incense for a priest, and myrrh for one who is going to give his life for us. And the interesting thing is that very soon Mary and Joseph are going to have to move again, and then they're going to have to move again, and then they're going to have to move again. 
They're going to go to Egypt, and then they're going to come back to Bethlehem, and they're, then they're going to have to run to Nazareth. And every single time, they're going to have to get a new place to live, and Joseph is going to have to start business all over again. I have a strong feeling that these gifts that the wise men provided for this baby was the funds they had in pocket that allowed them to go from Bethlehem to Egypt to Bethlehem to Nazareth. And you know, the interesting thing is that God doesn't work sometimes like we'd like Him to. What we would kind of like God to do is to come riding down on His horse, take His mighty blazing sword, strike Herod down, announce His Son, and there will be peace on earth. That's what we want. But what our Father in Heaven wants from us is to know that we can depend on Him in faith during times of waiting and during times of difficulty. He tells Abraham he's going to have a promised child 25 years before the baby is born. 25 years! He comes to Mary and Joseph and tells them that the Messiah is going to be born in their home. And they have to flee from a gossipy town. They have to flee from a murderous king. They have to flee from another murderous king. And then they have to move back to the same old gossipy town. What God is looking for from us is here in the lesson of the wise men and the holy family that we can live with him and we will trust him. Even when times are difficult. That's what faith is. They opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they returned to their own country by another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee. Why don't you just kill him, Lord? No, I'm not working that way. You flee. Take mama. Take the baby. Go to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose. Joseph did what God said. Another good lesson for us at Christmas time, right? God speaks, do what he says. He rose. He took the child, his mother, by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And what I want you to notice as as this Christmas story closes here today is that when Jesus comes out of Egypt as a child, once again, he's identifying with his people. That's how the Israelites thought of themselves. Our father was a wandering Aramean and we were slaves in Egypt and we were delivered. And Jesus was under an oppressive king and came out of Egypt. Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is our God who is with us. He has walked in the shoes that we walk in. He knows the stresses that we face. And that's exactly the kind of God he wants to be with us, the God who will walk with us. So as we close this Christmas message, I want to encourage you to look at the good behaviors of the shepherds and the wise men. When God shows up, go to hear from him. Go to see what he has for you. That's great. Go ahead. Right, go right ahead. <laughs>
Go to hear what God has got for you. Rejoice with exceeding joy when you hear the word of the Spirit, when you hear the word of the Lord come into your life. Rejoice in the things that God does and do what he tells you to do. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your message, for your people, for your gospel. We love seeing the hearts of these good people that other folks would just ignore. And yet you have carried your gospel to us through them. Father, let us be the same. Let us be people who would receive you with gladness. Help us to be motivated to encounter you where you have encouraged us to encounter you. And help us to be the kind of people that will be filled with joy in your presence and will carry the testimony of your love and work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.